prepare your ears, humans. Happy, sad, confused begins now. Today on Happy, Sad, Confused, Neil Gaiman, creator, author, and visionary on The Sandman. Hey guys, I'm Josh Horowitz, and welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. And yes, we've got Neil Gaiman back on the show. For the diehard listeners out there, we've had him on before five years ago, but this was a this was a fun confluence of events. We got Neil Gaiman on talking about not just any project, the project, the, the, the work that in many ways... Um, made him the name he is in the literary world, in the comic book world, uh, The Sandman. Born in late 88, I believe it first was published, and ever since then uh, has been revered, justifiably so, and has been developed um, nonstop, it seems, to be a film at times, a TV show at times, and it's been a a long road, guys, but we're here. And The Sandman is on Netflix. And this is a case where I think the the wait was worthwhile. It was done the right way. And uh, I think the audience is responding. I mean, we know the audience is responding. Um, if you haven't caught it yet, truly, I recommend this one. Um, I think it, it will play for the newcomer to the Sandman universe. But it, it will especially play to, to, to folks like me that, that uh, have read the comic. And it's... It's worth your time in any respect. This is a really special piece of um, piece of art, the comic and the TV show. Um, the show has been a, a great success with critics, a great success with viewers. At the time we taped this, uh, the, the big number that was floating around was like 200 million hours watched, which, yeah, like how do you even wrap your brain around it? Um, but suffice it to say, it's working. It's working with audiences. It worked with me, and it made for a great conversation. We had Neil at the 92nd Street uh, Y for one of our live tapings. We had a lovely, uh, enthusiastic audience, and the vibes were great. The energy was great, and Neil was great. Neil Neil's one of those... I mean, look, a lot of authors are maybe inward types that maybe aren't great public personas and, and, and great in that public realm, but Neil is not that. Neil is a storyteller in every respect. The voice, the um, just the way he can, he can explain his art um, is kind of uh, really inspiring to hear. So this was a great one. This was a fun, deep dive into all things The Sandman. 90, 95% of this conversation is just on The Sandman, on the, the birth of the initial comic, on the development of the show, of the choices he's made in the series. Uh, this will reward especially you guys that have watched the entire run of the series. Um, you can listen to this if you haven't watched the entire run, or any of it, I suppose, but I think um, best consumed this conversation uh, would be after watching the 11 episodes of The Sandman. Yes, initially they dropped 10 episodes and they dropped a bonus 11th episode uh, which actually contains two different stories. uh, Two of my favorites, by the way. Uh, We get into all of it. So, this is for the nerds out there and I mean that in the nicest possible way. I'm one. This is for the hardcore uh, lovers of things like Sandman. I think you're going to dig this one. There's a a lot of great stuff in here from one of our greatest storytellers around. Um, if you want to watch this, 
we've put up uh, this on the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Josh Horowitz. That's where we're putting up all these new videos now, these clip outs, the full videos, the archive videos. Um, we're really building up the YouTube presence. I encourage you guys to go subscribe to the YouTube channel. Again, it's youtube.com slash Josh Horowitz. Don't worry, Patreon folks. There's stuff for you there too. We're putting it all up first for you. We're getting, giving you exclusive announcements, exclusive videos, the first look at every video, bonus content, all of it. So patreon.com slash happy say confused is for, uh, you know, the real devotees, the folks, I might even love you guys all the more than, than the run of the mill fan. But, but in all seriousness, um, we're still making that worth uh, every every dollar you're putting in over there. So I encourage you to check out what we're doing on the Patreon, and I and again I encourage you guys to check out what we're doing on the YouTube uh, channel, which I'm I'm really excited about. Um, what else to mention? Okay, so Neil Gaiman's the main event. Uh, I don't know, man. It's it's been it's been a busy time. I you know I moderated the the Neil Gaiman event at the 92 NY. Uh, I just did a, an event with Allison Brie for her uh, wild new movie, Spin Me Round. Um, I've got more events coming up. We have one event that we can officially talk about, which is uh, October 25th at Symphony Space with Ralph Macchio. The link to purchase tickets to that is in the show notes, so check that out. There's another event that hasn't officially been announced yet, but is going to be, I think, pretty soon at 92NY again. That should be in the end of September. Um, and we're working on other live events. Um, so yeah, a lot of things happening. I'm psyched for the fall film season. I'm going to be at the Toronto Film Festival. I'll be at the Telluride Film Festival. I'm starting to see some of these movies. Um, so I'm hyped. I'm excited. Uh, and I hope you guys are too. This is this is getting you know we're at the tail end of the summer, which is not necessarily usually the best time for film, but we're turning the corner to enter in when all the great filmmakers trot out their wares. And um, yeah, it's it's going to be a fun few months. So I hope you follow along. Um, all right, let's get to the main event, which is. Uh, this live uh, event that we taped at 92NY in New York City. You're going to hear a fun, uh, great conversation, a thoughtful conversation with Neil Gaiman. You're going to hear the energy of the live audience. You're going to hear it all. Uh, you're going to get the nitty-gritty background of the themes and, 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 and just how they, how they put it all together to make the Sandman. I know you guys are going to enjoy this chat. As always, hit me up on Twitter, on Instagram. Let me know what you're loving and hating accent on the loving you can stick to that mostly for my own sanity uh joshua horowitz is where, where you can find me um here it is my conversation at 92ny with mr neil Gaiman. good evening everybody thank you save some of your applause for the main event okay that's just a warm-up uh, thank you guys so much for coming out to this 92NY event and a live, happy, sad, confused uh, taping. So we've got, yes, yes, welcome. Uh, and welcome to our online audience and to those of you listening after the fact, this was great. You don't know it yet, but this was amazing. Um, so we've got a real treat for you guys tonight. Um, truly backstage is one of the greatest storytellers alive. He has contributed so much um, amazing magic, yes, I'll use that word, magical storytelling in every form conceivable, whether it's comic books, graphic novels, short stories, novels, audio plays, etc. Um, and now, 
with his seminal work, The Sandman, um, decades in the making after stops and starts for literally, literal decades, this show has recently dropped, as you well know, and in the first, uh, I think the numbers in the first two weeks, The Sandman on Netflix was watched a combined 200 million hours, uh, which is kind of impressive, yes. Um, and I contributed about 11 of those. <laughs> um, and contributing to our entertainment tonight will be the one and only Give it up for Mr. Neil Gaiman, please. Thank you, Neil, for uh, sharing your time with us today. Uh, at a very, I mean, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, but particularly at this moment. This is a, this is a moment. Um, as I said, it's been a long journey to get here. We're going to get into all of it. We're going to really focus on Sandman tonight because that's, look, it's, it's, it's your pride and joy, and here we are, and you must feel thrilled. But, but you tell me, what are you feeling right now, two-plus weeks into this run uh, of unleashing Sandman onto the world in television form at long last? Joy. Mostly just joy. Occasional bafflement. <laughs> But, you know, the bafflement brings a certain, highlights the joy. Um, baffled by, meaning what? The I get baffled because I, I have to sort of suddenly go, okay, this is reality, isn't it? This is, I'm, I'm, so over the years at San, when I was writing Sandman as a monthly comic, um, you had the comics top 100. We were always in the top 100. Um, after, I don't know, Sandman 42, somewhere like that, we were often in the top 50. In the lower reaches of the top 50. You, know, like, <laughs> you were 40, happy. Seven. You were happy with that at the time. We, well, it was sort of just where we were. And... The world of comics was very strange. So as, because as we went up and our numbers and our readership went up, the entire world of comics went into this mad explosion. So Sandman 50 came out and it sold, you know, quarter of a million copies, which at any other time would have made us a top five comic, except that that was the month when everything was selling millions and millions and millions. So we're still down there, at, you know, number... <laughs> 47 or whatever. And eventually, the very last issue of Sandman, Sandman 75, made it to number one on the charts. And we didn't make it to number one by selling an incredible number of copies. We made it to number one because we were still selling the same number of copies that we've been selling at, you know, number 45. And everything else had gone into an implosion, and they'd stopped selling in the millions. <laughs> we waited them out. <laughs> and we'd waited them out. And now, instead of selling one and a half million copies a month, they're all selling 100,000. No, now they're selling 75,000, 60,000, 55,000. We're at number one. And so that was my kind of, that's how I think of Sandman. Right. Is we are this sort of plucky little thing that carries along in the background. And then... We just existed in graphic novel form. And over the years and over the decades, we would sell and sell and sell and sell 
and sell and sell to the point where now millions upon millions of people have read Sandman. And I, I sort of think of those millions and millions of people as being um, the yogurt starter, <laughs> to make a very unfortunate analogy, um, <laughs> who got to sort of bring us out into the world because they were the, the people who, on our first weekend of Netflix when we dropped, are just like, yeah, I'm going to watch Sandman now. That was nine hours of my life. I'm going to do it again now. Right. <laughs> and those people were there, and they were the ones who, in a lot of ways, we were kind of making it for them. Because if they'd hated it, they would have told everybody. Yes. And they, they would have be quiet about it. They, they would not it. have been quiet. They would not even have been polite. <laughs> they wouldn't have done that thing of, you know, like, like it says in Bambi, where you don't have anything nice to say. You, you know they would have told everybody. And instead, what they did was tell their friends, oh, there's a thing called Salmon, you've got to watch it. And that, I think, is what propelled us to number one. In all of these, what I loved is the fact that it wasn't just getting to number one in America or Australia or England or New Zealand. Or, we got to number one in places where I didn't know Netflix existed. You know, we're still number one in Ukraine. I'm so proud of that. Um, and, but we're also number one in Nigeria. You know, it's like, it's, it's so, this fabulous country. Thank you. Yes. Um, we, it, it's sort of, it's this all over the world thing. And now some countries we've drifted as far down as number two or number three, but they're still watching us. <laughs> and I, I love this. I love that we're a phenomenon. We probably have another couple of days of being a phenomenon until House of the Dragon starts. And then <laughs> maybe a week or two in which people remember that we were once a phenomenon and then Lord of the Rings will start. And then we'll, <laughs> we'll be that thing that happened a long time ago. No, but I mean, look, I do want to talk about the journey of this, both as a comic and development uh, of this eventual Netflix series, because... And I know some of these stories you've told a thousand times, but just for the benefit of context, talk to me about where you were when you created Sandman, the initial comic, I guess first published in late 1988. Who was Neil Gaiman then? What was Sandman to you then? What was the germ of the idea? I was, uh, let's see, so moving back in time. Yes. Um, I'm 26 years old. I'm writing a comic called Black Orchid for DC Comics. It's my first ever mainstream work. I've written a couple of sort of more underground comics and a couple of a handful of 2000 AD shorts, but that's what I've done so far. And, uh, but I'm writing Black Orchid, which Dave McKean is drawing, painting. And I get a phone call from Karen Berger, my editor, and she says, look, um, we're getting a bit worried about Black Orchid because you're two people nobody's ever heard of doing a character nobody remembers and a female character at that and they don't sell. And uh, so um, we're going to give Dave McKean a Batman thing to draw. Uh, Grant Morrison has written a thing called Arkham Asylum, so we're going to get Dave to do that. And we thought maybe 
you could do a monthly comic and it would just boost your profile. And I said, okay. And she said, well, who would you like to do? And I started listing characters. And I'd say, how about the demon? And she'd say, no, so-and-so is doing the demon. And I'd say, well, the phantom stranger. No, so-and-so is doing the phantom stranger. Uh, uh, the forever people. No, somebody's doing the forever people. I would get more and more, you know, I'm just racking my brains for a DC. They, they've said I can do a DC Comics thing. What do I want to do? And eventually, Karen said, yeah, I don't like any of those ideas. What about that Sandman thing that you were talking to me and Jeanette Kahn about over dinner? And I'm like, oh, yeah. And, and that was an idea I'd had for a way of bringing back the 1972-1973 Joe Simon Jack Kirby, rather goofy Sandman. And she said, yeah, but don't, don't do that, because I think he's going to be coming back in Infinity Incorporated or something. Just do your own. Do your own character called the Sandman. You can make it up from scratch. And I'm like, oh. You're saying I have creative freedom? What? Okay. <laughs> so I, I remember just sort of sitting thinking, going, well, this is interesting. I am somebody who has written at this point, written and sold during the course of my life, maybe 10 pieces of fiction. And now I'm being asked to write a monthly comic. I'm going to have to come up with one story every month. Okay. So whatever I do needs to be able to take me anywhere. And I know that I get bored easily. I know I can't do, I don't have the, the, the muscles, the engines, to write a superhero comic. Right. The villain of the week is not... I, yeah. It's just not going to be interesting for me. And for that matter, I, even if it was like something like Swamp Thing, a comic I loved, I'm not going to be able to do Monster of the Month either. Or I could do it for a while, but I would get really bored. And if I want to do this, I want something that I can go anywhere with. And so I was chewing over that... And then I was thinking, uh, I thought about an author I loved called Roger Zelazny. And I thought, you know, there was a thing that Roger did. Um, particularly, he did it a lot of times, but he did it particularly well in a novel called Lord of Light, where he gave us human beings who were essentially taking on the trappings and the mantles of gods and who kind of felt kind of superhero-y. There was something about them that, that it, you know, it wasn't exactly a superhero, but it was as if you'd bonged the sea on a piano and you'd heard some of the other seas vibrating. Right. And this was one of those high seas, but it was vibrant. And I thought, okay, I could, what if I do that? What if I do God comics? And, and I've been vaguely, at the time, uh, a writer-artist named John Byrne had been recreating, reinventing Superman a bit, and he kept saying that the problem with Superman is Superman had become too powerful, and the stories don't work if you have somebody who's too powerful. And I kept looking at that quote and thinking, I don't think that's ever the problem. I think the problem is not power. I think the problem is 
who you are and whether you're broken and who you, how you react to and how you make that happen. So all of that kind of fed into the idea of a incredibly powerful being who was absolutely in an awful lot of ways screwed up yeah. and could not get out of his own way. And, and also the idea of writing somebody who wasn't entirely human. I love the idea that he wouldn't necessarily think like us. And every now and then we would just be forcibly reminded of the fact that he wasn't one of us. You'd get sort of lulled into it. And I, I remember coming up with plans for how this thing was going to work. I was about to write my outline for it when we had the first hurricane in England in 500 years. And my little village called Nutley, not to be confused with the one in New Jersey, um, Nutley was in the middle of the Ashdown Forest, Winnie the Pooh country, and all of the trees went down. And we, had, we were cut off for several days and then had no power for a week. And uh, which meant that I actually it was really good for me. It just forced a week of thinking. Yeah. And it forced a frustrated week, but in which I just remember walking from room to room, pacing around, thinking a lot, making notes, imagining. And imagining, what, what was interesting is I didn't think there was a chance, I didn't think there was a hope in hell, to coin a phrase that is possibly Sandman apt, um, that we would get beyond issue 12. I, I knew that it just didn't work like that. You know, at issue eight, they would phone me up and they'd say, we're not really selling any comics, but um, you have until issue 12 to wrap it up. So I planned for myself an eight-issue first storyline, and then I was going to do four issues of short stories, and then that would be that. Except that at issue eight, we were selling, yeah. and we were outselling anything comparable. Didn't With a mean, new and different demographic, you were expanding the comic book audience. I don't, I don't know that we were then. I, we, we did that. That, I think, started at issue eight. We, I mean, all I, can, all I can go on is my memories of signings. The very first signing I ever did was at Jim Hanley's Universe, uh, December 1988 for Sandman 1, me and Mike Dringenberg, 14 young men <laughs> in the line, me and Mike sitting there with stacks of Sandman 1 on sold in front of us, desperate to sign them. Um, and from there on out, for about a year, it was nice young men between the ages of 16 and 23. And then it started to change. And then, and you notice that some of these nice young men were nice young women. And a phenomenon was beginning to occur where the nice young men had been trying to get their girlfriends to read comics unsuccessfully for months or years and finally they found this thing (laughs) (laughs) and then the girlfriend would leave and she'd take the comics with them and she'd give them to the next bloke and I was being sexually transmitted (laughs) Um, 
And Neil Gaiman, the best STD out there, <laughs> the, the human. <laughs> the, it, it was happening. And then, you know, not long after that, I was, at, you know, I remember 1991, San Diego Comic Convention, several large gentlemen in stained T-shirts came up to me during the course of the convention and said, you're Neil Gaiman, man, I gotta shake your hand. I gotta shake your hand. You bring women into my store, man. <laughs> and, and it's like, and, and I would never say, if you just sweep the floor, they will come back. <laughs> but I would always think it. Um, we could spend hours, and there could be documentaries about the stops and starts of, of, of turning this into a film or TV show. So here's my, my main question, because there, there have been some notable attempts. Was there initially in the 90s, when you first started to contemplate and take meetings, was there a dream director, a dream dream, a dream casting in your mind? I know I've heard you say you admired Terry Gilliam's work. Was there someone like in your heart of hearts like, oh, if it all came together now, this would be the way to do it? All I wanted was for there not to be a bad Sandman film. I was not thinking... I want a Sandman film. My first ever meeting was in March 1990 at Warner Brothers with uh, Lisa Henson, Jim Henson's daughter, who at that point was a, a high exec and, um, at Warner's. And, and she said, so, Sandman. I said, please don't make it. Please don't. I'm just getting started on the comic. It's just getting going. It's getting attention. Um, honestly, I don't think you could make a good one right now, and just please, it will be a distraction. She's like, nobody's ever come into my office before and asked me not to make a movie. <laughs> you understand how this works, right? And yeah. I'm like, well, well, I am. And she said, okay, well, we won't make it. And I said, thank you, and we have been friends ever since. <laughs> um, by 1996, I was being taken to Warner's, where the then president of Warner Brothers sat me down and told me that Michael Jackson had phoned him uh, the day before and asked him if he could star as, as Morpheus in The Sandman. So uh, wow. there was a lot of interest in this, and they knew that it was one of the crown jewels, and what did I think? And I'm like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and there were honestly some decent scripts. I, I you know, I... I know that the way that I phrase it is as if I was fighting to stop bad versions. There were, Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio wrote the best script I think they could have written at the time. These were the Several, Pirates of the Caribbean screenwriters, as I recall. Pirates of the Caribbean, before they, before they were famous for Pirates of the Caribbean, before they were famous for Men in Black. Um, they did, um, uh, you know, they wrote some fabulous Sandman scripts. The problem was that any attempt at doing a Sandman script where you're looking at basically, you know, these days 3,000 pages of story, back then 2,000 pages of story, was turning that into 200 minutes. Yeah. Is a, it's, it doesn't really work. And um, I, I remember Paul Roger Avery being fired and taken on as a director. Uh, he explained to Warner Brothers, he actually laid on a screening for them of Jan Schwenkmeyer's stop-motion film Alice, 
to show them what he wanted the dreaming to feel like when you were in it. And he was fired, and his parking space name was painted out by the time that he left that screening. Um, <laughs> the, uh, there were some terrible ones. I can do bad jokes about how terrible they were, but they were more terrible than you could possibly imagine that John Peters sort of helmed in the late 90s. There were a few attempts at making um, TV shows, none of which really worked because the things that, all of the things that are a feature with taking us to Netflix would have been bugs then, including the budget and including the horror and including just the nature of the story. When you try and turn that into something that you could, you know, show on Fox, you're not really... You're neutering it. You're neutering yeah. well, You've met the moment and, and, and in many respects, finding the right collaborators behind the camera and also this cast. And I want to talk about the cast a bit because it's, it's a remarkable... I love my cast. They're so good. As you should. <laughs> um, and by the nature of the story and the storytelling, it has to be a large ensemble, clearly. In some episodes, you know, Dream is barely in, and others, you know, it, so it, it's, it's fascinating to see. But I want to start with Tom, Tom Sturridge. Yeah. Because that's a, that's a challenge. That's a challenging role, to say the least. And talk, do you remember the time when you saw his tape? Sure. Do you remember the time when you first saw the dailies of him? I mean, I feel like it's half the job is the cheekbones and the, the, and the, and the, and the but, coats, uh, but... You see, it isn't. And that's, that was, you make, ex I love the fact that you've made exactly the same mistake that I made. <laughs> um, when we talked about casting, I was like, it's going to be so easy to cast, which is fine. You know, an English-speaking actor with great cheekbones. Right. There's loads of them out there. Get them in a nice and coat. knowing that yeah. we could find them. <laughs> um, we got... We've, we saw, in the end, I believe, about 1,500 Morpheus auditions. Um, that means that the, um, Lucinda Sison, our, our, our casting director, probably saw about 6,000. Because I know there were a lot that they never sent to us. Um, in the first email from Lucinda, it contained four auditions. He was the third of the fourth. They weren't ranked in any kind of order, just his. And I watched the four. And I was like, oh, Tom Sturridge. Oh, he's really good. He says the lines well. He's got the whole, oh, great. Okay, good. We can shortlist him. And I figured that at the end of a couple of weeks, we'd have a shortlist of five or ten, just as good as him, right. just as right as him, just as you could say the lines as well as him. And we didn't. At the end of a week, we had Tom. At the end of two weeks, we had Tom. At the end of a month, we had Tom. At the end of six weeks, we said to... Warner Brothers, it's Tom, isn't it? And they're like, yes, it is Tom. And, <laughs> and we said, well, how do we stop him going and getting another job? And Warner said, we'll pay him not to go and get another job. <laughs> Tom, we're just going to give you money not to go and get another job. And Tom's like, okay. So have I got the job? And we're like, no. But just please don't go away. And then Netflix were like, oh, have you seen everybody? We're like, 
we found Tom. And they go, but yes, but have you seen everybody? And we're like, no. So we saw a few more people. Netflix went, okay, maybe it is Tom. <laughs> and we said, we think it is. And then the pandemic happened. And Netflix said, well, it's probably Tom. But given that we can't start shooting for another six months, just make sure you've seen everybody. Have you seen every actor in Australia? Have you seen every actor in, you know, Latvia? And we're like, we have this old Michael Jackson tape we want you to see. <laughs> so we saw a lot of Morpheuses, and what I learned from that is that his line's really hard to say. Yeah. And because we saw some fabulous actors, we saw amazing actors. It's not like anybody was bad. There was a level, there was a, a, a bar that they had to cross in order for us to be watching their video anyway. These were every actor with great cheekbones on the planet <laughs> of all races, of all nationalities, of everything. And at the end, it was still Tom. And, and what's weird is mostly, I think, it was the voice. Um, there was something about the way he delivered the lines, the thoughtful way he delivered the lines, the way he'd find the poetry and the beauty and the tune yeah. of the lines, um, the way he'd take lines that were just, you know, I mean, a lot of the time, we didn't even have all of the scripts written, so we just were giving him, you know, pages of the comic typed out to audition with and stuff. And it was wonderful. Yeah. It, was, it was right. And it was that. And from that point on, um, you know, it was Tom all the way. I gave him precisely one note. Um, which I, I, I got to go down to the set. And this was we're really in the first couple of days of shooting here. We, we just started shooting. It's just begun. I'm down there. I'm seeing the, the undercroft where he's going to be kept prisoner. And Tom and I do a little interview together, meeting him for the first time. And I say to him, I'm so pleased because for the last three decades people have been expecting to meet Morpheus and they meet me and they're disappointed and now can point them in that direction and now they can meet you and they'll be disappointed but they won't be disappointed with me I'll be it'll be great um but I, I said to him you know I said I, I and I took him to one side he said, look, I have just one note for you. And he said, yeah, what's that? And I said, don't do Batman. Right. Because he was just, it was Grab his first the couple of days, and he was just getting a little bit. Whiz and it's just like, no, yeah. And he said, what should I be doing? I said, the thing you did on every audition. Right. He said, what, when I was just talking? I said, yes, that, we liked that. <laughs> that thing you do where you talk. Do that. Just don't do the voice. You don't have to Batman it. He was like, okay. I can do that. So, yes. Speaking of your cast, we have a, a video question 
that has come in for you. Okay. That references a bit of your cast. Uh, can we roll this tape, please, for Mr. Neil Gaiman? Hi, my name is Patton Oswalt. I'm a comic book fan and a huge Sandman fan. My question for Mr. Gammon is how come in Spider-Man No Way Home, Thomas Hayden Church just had the one scene when you see him not in Sandman form? Was there like script problems or in, with the Sandman character, who's one of my favorite characters. Um, thank you for ask. Thank you, thank you for answering my question, Mr. Gammon. Thank you. Thank you, uh, thank you so much for your for your question, Oswald. Um, <laughs> Aussie, as I'm henceforth going to call you. Uh, you know, you don't from, what I love about that is you would not think that from that video that Patton Oswalt, uh, 29 years ago, no, 30 years ago, was standing in line to get his copy of Season of Mist signed uh, at the hardcover uh, at Comics Experience and Divisadero in San Francisco. But he was there in that line and uh, would show up afterwards at signings and events. And I, I got to meet him properly, I think, for the first time um, at a reading I did for the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund at a restaurant called The Stinking Rose in Los Angeles, <laughs> where he told me that he was an up-and-coming comedian. And I, I told him that, you know, I did the good luck. You know, <laughs> keep thrusting away and you'll get there in the end. And that kind of thing. That means all of us in 29 years are going to be in one of your 29 shows, years. Basically. Everyone's going to be on, making fun of me on the screen. <laughs> um, one of the, speaking about the larger ensemble, um, some of the joys are unusual castings related to what you would expect from the comic. Uh, gender swapped uh, mm -hmm. roles. Um, Joanna Constantine, played by the, the amazing Jenna Coleman. That, that one was so much fun. That one, that one is weird because... Perhaps it says something about how dense I am. Um, I never expected any kind of pushback, upset, or anything on that one. It, it literally never occurred to me. The way David and Alan and I sitting around a table going, you know, we've got John Constantine in episode three. Um, we've got Lady Joanna showing up She'll be in there for a little scene in Men of Good Fortune. We're then going to bring her back in for Thermidor. She's got to be on the run in Revolutionary France. Why don't we just make her, give her the John Constantine role so that, you know, it just seemed to make sense. We'll get a better class of actor. We can, you know, somebody will get to come back three times and that's just more fun for serialized television, and it just made complete sense that we do that. So we did it. And, um, and only after I did it, uh, after it had happened, did we discover that there was now a moratorium on using John Constantine anyway, because that had sort of happened 
while because they've got a Constantine series in development, so you couldn't have used the character anyway. So I was like, oh, well, that was really that was useful. Yeah. And then suddenly having people turn around and going, ah, you have done a woke gender swap on us, and we're like, <laughs> no, we're just sort of it's we're being economical. We had this character already. Yeah. This character that I had made up in early 1989. <laughs> and they were like, there's an awful lot of, I am a comics fan, and I know there is no such person as Joanna Constantine. I'm like, here. <laughs> also, here's her miniseries. <laughs> you know, she came out. Um, I, she was really fun to cast. Yeah. Um, and for, by really fun, I mean a complete pain in the neck. Um, in that we got every fabulous British actress, you know, people, I'm like enormous fans of, to read, and it didn't work. And then we started feeling desperate. And I remember suggesting Jenna Coleman and our casting director saying, isn't she too young? And I'm like, no, she used to be too young. Right, but you see but the way it works. Time has been yeah. moving forward, and I think we've, can we at least test her? <laughs> and Jenna, who was, I think, in Thailand or somewhere shooting something, uh, did it with her taping, you know, did, tested a scene with her having taped all of the conversation with herself and stuff, and sent it in. It's like, oh, yeah, there we go. That's, that's the thing. That's what we wanted. That's that. That's the voice, that's the attitude. There is the doomed person that you will, <laughs> you will love and admire, yet they will be doomed. Is there, is there, it might be greedy to talk about this at this point, and we'll get to the future later on, but you know, we, we don't know for sure if there will be a second season, but let's hope. We hope. Um, there's, but there's also, you know, not to be greedy, but spin-offs. I mean, would you want to see that character, for instance, get her own series? Are oh, there, God, yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't imagine it happening in a world in which HBO's Constantine, right. or possibly Constantine, happens. Um, <laughs> that differentiates it, the pronunciation. Exactly. There, yeah. um, but if that didn't happen, or if the world, you know, if it worked, I, I would love to. I, I can think of nothing that would be more fun than watching Jenna Coleman battling demons across London and having doomed love affairs and things. Um, it's old. You know, she's, she's wonderful. She's so funny and doomed. So, <laughs> so yeah, she was, and she was so much fun to cast. Um, the, you know, Cain and Abel. I loved, I loved casting Cain and Abel, mostly because that was one of those really easy ones. As Sim Chowdhury, it's like, oh, yeah, <laughs> there's Abel. That was easy. Um, Let's talk about um, the surprise that you gave us all a couple days ago, which was, yes. yes. Um, not just a bonus episode, but two phenomenally told stories, uh, Dream of a Thousand Cats and Calliope. Um, so as I understand it, this was baked into the concept from the get-go. Yeah. Um, why in this way? Were there other permutations of how to do this? Just give me a little bit of the sense of how this came together. Okay, so the original, original plan, as David and I and Alan sat around that dinner table, we really did hash out, I mean, it was just, this is the plan. Um, the plan at the dinner table that night over sushi, somewhere in Los Angeles, <laughs> was um, 
we'll do 10 episodes, and then because the second season won't be, it'll, it'll take two years to get to the screen, the way that these things work. Um, we should have, we'll have an episode that will drop after a year, just to remind people that we still exist. <laughs> still around. So that yep. was the original idea. So that was when we, we came up with the first concept of we'll do, and we'll do Dream of a Thousand Cats, and we'll do Calliope, and also, we figured that the animation on Dream of a Thousand Cats was going to take a lot longer than it actually did. We yeah. knew that it would take a long time, but we thought, okay, if we're going to get it fully animated, it's going to be a very, very long process. So we liked the idea of an extra year. Um, but it did mean that we, you know, they were some of the first scripts that got written. Um, and Dream of a Thousand Cats could get started on right from the get-go. Um, and somewhere in there, we started realizing that actually um, Dream of a Thousand Cats was going to get finished significantly earlier than we had thought it would, which was part of it, and that Calliope... And, you know, we shot Calliope and we just wanted people to see it. We did not want to lead people around for a year on that. Um, so by the time it was shot, we were definitely talking about going, okay, yeah. let's, let's release it. We've, we've still got it and it still doesn't feel like we should drop 1 to 11. It still feels like we drop 1 to 10 because 10 is the end of the season. 11 feels like this is what, this is now, now we've taken you to here, the door is opening and this is, these are the kind of lands we can take you to. Um, we managed to keep it a secret. Um, everybody was really, really good about making sure they kept the secret except me. <laughs> I was rubbish. Um, not only did I tweet the book cover for Here Comes a Candle about 14 months ago. Um, <laughs> but I also tweeted in reply to somebody asking me about cats that we have, we, we started casting the cats yesterday or something like that. <laughs> um, but that wasn't the worst of it. The worst of it was San Diego Comic Convention a month ago, or a bit less. I'm sitting there with some journalists, with Alan Heinberg at a table, and the question comes about casting and who we cast, and how we got them, and people we had cast that we had worked with before. And so I started listing the people that I'd worked with before. And I'm talking about people, and I'm listing cast, I'm listing cast, and then I take a deep breath and I say, and then Sir Derek Jacobi, and Alan Heinberg, it gave me the kind of look that is the look equivalent of I'm kicking you under the table. <laughs> And I said, Sir Derek Jacobi isn't in Sandman, but I really hope he will be. <laughs> and that was a totally normal thing to say. Totally normal thing to <laughs> randomly say. I thought they're going to pick up on that, and obviously everybody was under stress, and nobody did. But there is reference to Orpheus, to Dream and Clive's child in, yep. in the episode, um, and I think one of your collaborators has said that that character would factor into season two, and that there's a casting in mind. Uh, Alan, Alan Heinberg has said that, yes. 
Um, and I, who am so good at accidentally letting cats out of the bag, have nothing at all to say about any of that. Does the actor know that they are? No actors know. No, none of the actors. There are several actors. I, I mean, you know, it is the worst thing about knowing that we have season two coming up because I will, I'll go to the theater and I'll go, oh. <laughs> Look up their biography. Okay. Send a little text to Alan Heinberg. What about so-and-so for such-and-such such part? Get thing back saying noted. Um, Can you say how prominent Orpheus would play a, a role in season two? No. Okay. Um, That's fair. I, I mean, I can't basically... On, honestly, the answer to everything is it's an awful lot like the comics. Yeah. Just like season one. Yeah. The answer is we don't always take exactly the same route to get to the same place that we did in the comics. Sometimes, you know, you may get a little more than you were expecting. I love the fact that we got to bring Boyd Holbrook in much more as the Corinthian. Yeah. Um, but it's, he's so good. <laughs> um, but part of the joy of that was because we got to use Sandman Overture as a starting point where you discover that Morpheus was on his way to close down the Corinthian when he got pulled away. So um, that, we just used that, basically. And then knowing that we had the Corinthian there, we got to go, okay, well, why not just thread him, thread him through the story? And what about taking these kind of creative swings like animation? I mean, because this now proves, I mean, the reception to this episode in particular has been fantastic. Yep. Um, do you, are, are there other approaches outside of traditional live action um, that you would want to experiment with? Um, honestly, as long as Netflix are good with us, you know, writing us the check to keep going, yeah. um, we will keep going and we will continue to reinvent the ways that we're doing things. I, I, I'm really excited about some of the stuff that we've planned for season two. We have, I mean, we really have planned how we're gonna do season two. Um, and it's an awful lot of fun because we're taking some of the short stories and building them into the body of the main thing. And we're taking, um, we've got ways of flowing from one storyline into the next storyline that we didn't necessarily have. Um, so it's, it's built and it's shaped and it's constructed. Yeah. And we're already talking about things like, you know, places that you could use different kinds of animation. Would we want to use animation again? It's really expensive. Yes. I mean, it cost us a lot of money for that, that 16 minutes. People are coming to me and saying, whoa, could you do the whole thing animated? It's like, yes, I could. If somebody <laughs> wanted to give us half a billion dollars, we could absolutely do the whole thing animated. Um, but, uh, but there are definitely ways that you can go, okay, well, how would we do picking one at random? Uh, Ramadan. How do you do Ramadan to make it feel fairy tale and to distinguish the layers of story and would, would we look at doing that yeah. animated? Would we look at doing it um, 
you know, are there ways to combine people with animation or people with paintings that you could push into a different kind of place? And the answer is I don't know, but we, we, we're really keen on finding out. One other question I, I do have about Calliope in, in particular, um, and it's one of my favorite episodes, is um, a lot has been made about the restraint, frankly, and how it's depicted. And it's really, it's, it's refreshing in a, in a time where, you know, we've been inundated for decades with these depictions of sexual assault, and, and, and explicitly so. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really, for those of you that haven't seen it yet, you know, this is about a muse that is abused, and, and, but what is shown on screen is so, is so minimal, and, and yet tells everything you need to know. In a, in a way is that, it's not correcting a mistake of what you did, but it, but it, but it, is, it is reflecting the times that we're in now. It reflects the times. Um, I was worried. I mean, I was really concerned because, and my biggest concern was if we were telling too little, it would make Rick Maddock too sympathetic. Right. So it's a weird kind of line that you're walking where I wanted the audience not to ever go, well, he's not that bad. I mean, he, he kept her in a room and would go in and offer her chocolate sometimes. I mean, what's the, what is the problem here? You know, I, I didn't want that. Um, and and I, was, I was definitely concerned that people would not see it. And I was so relieved that they did. Yeah. And I was so relieved. It's like, okay, that one scratch on his face and people go, she fought back. Yeah. This is what he did when he went into that room. This is what happened. It's like, good. Yeah. And, um, and I felt like it was always a, it was always going to be a struggle to depict assault without depicting it. Yeah. And, you know, and I watched, it was something that one watched Game of Thrones struggling with failing trying you know and you're going well your heart's in the right place but the rest of you is really in the wrong place on some of this stuff yeah so i asked you to uh select some of your favorite scenes and i feel badly we're already running out of time but i want to show at least one of them this is from episode four i believe and highlights yet another amazing cast member the great gwendolyn christie um let's take a look at this scene between tom and gwendolyn Hello, dream. Greetings to you, Lucifer Morningstar. And to you, Mazakino the Lilim. Greetings, dream lord. You look well, dream. Are you well? And your family? Destiny, death, despair, and the others? I presume the ruler of hell knows this is no social call. Have you come to join forces, then? To ally your realm to ours. To acknowledge the sovereignty of hell. You know my feelings on that, Lightbringer. Feelings change. Especially when one has been caught and imprisoned by mortals. We expected better of you, sweet Morpheus. I have come because my helm of state was stolen from me. I believe one of your demons has it. I should like it back. Now, 
dream. If only it were that easy. But there are rules, you see. Protocols which must be followed. Which demon has your helm? Name it, and we will bring it here. I confess I do not know the name. Then we will have to summon all of them. you noticed in that an actor called I think it's Oswald Patterson in that little <laughs> in the little bird suit he's he plays Matthew and they squeeze him in the he's it's back. remarkable he's the Daniel Day Lewis of our of our time um I mean there are so many aspects of that we could discuss I mean just we haven't even discussed like just the incomprehensibility of how we create all how you guys created all these different realms um Gwendolyn's performance, but what strikes you about that when you see the, the see part of a, a tiny part, an amazing part of your vision realized on screen? I, what I love, I, I, you know, the thing that irritated me most, and I think was the reason why I was so much ruder online than I normally am, because I'm normally kind of nice, and um, even with idiots. Um, but when idiots would get grumpy about Gwendolyn Christie being cast as Lucifer and accused me of woke gender swapping and stuff like that. And I'm like, I want somebody who can play the most beautiful angel, um, God's most beloved angel who is now a fallen angel and is ruler of hell and convince you. And I want that. And I want, I cast Gwendolyn because I knew that we'd get that, and I cast her because she towers over, well, all of us, but um, <laughs> Tom in particular, and I cast her because you were going to get the beauty, and you were going to get the majesty, and you were going to get that feeling that something inside was broken, um, and it's all there, it and it's so gorgeous. Uh, some questions from our audience, yes. Our first question, this proves I'm not the only one that's evil and asking about the future seasons. They want to know too. Is there a specific character scene from volume three onwards that you're particularly excited to develop for the screen if the series continues? I, you know, so much of this is selfish. I want to be able to watch three Septembers in the January. I want to watch, I want to be able to, sit there and watch the first cut all the way through. And, um, and that one is gonna be a really high bar because we got John Lithgow to play it in the Audible version, right. which is pretty much as good as you could ever hope to get. Um, so whoever is gonna play our, our Norton, our Emperor Norton, is gonna have to be as good as John Lithgow. Um, 
this member of the audience wants to know, we're getting deep here, they've always, wanted to, they've always wondered, what do you think happens after death? Neil Gaiman. Uh, I've always subscribed to the Peter Pan theory of death, where, where when talking about death, Peter says it would be an awfully big adventure. Um, what do you dream, Neil? Um, I am like most people, I think. You know, I dream those normal kind of dreams where you're being pursued through endless corridors of eternal castles by creatures whose faces are composed of spaghetti and um, <laughs> just trying to find you and wherever you hide, you know, the rats come. <laughs> wow. Isn't that what, I mean. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> that's, you were expecting something less interesting? Um. <laughs> but mostly dream, mostly I dream, have dreams with houses in. Hmm. Um, and uh, buildings and rooms and rooms, rooms with rooms inside rooms. You know, that I, I tend to do that thing in dreams a lot where I will be in a room that I know or a room I grew up in and I will discover that there was a serving hatch or a cupboard with another room inside it and head on in and just keep going in. Has this changed your relationship to this material? As you said, you wrote this initially. You're a man in your mid-late 20s. You're not that man now. It's been a little time. I mean, these are in many ways some of the same stories, some of the same words, some of the same characters, but you're at a different stage in your life. It must have a different resonance to you. It does. I, I'm often reminded of Lou Reed. I, I remember interviewing Lou when I would have been in my early 30s, and he was talking about um, songs he had written in his late teens or his 20s and singing them in his, what, he, what would he have been, late 40s, 50s, um, and how they would take him by surprise because young Lou had said something that he couldn't possibly have known, that old Lou has now discovered is true. And that would be, and I get that. I get those moments, and how did you know? Yeah. You, were, you were callow. You were young, you were a baby, but you knew this thing, and actually you were right. So, um, and also a lot of going, oh, you smug git. <laughs> you know, as, as, there are definitely times when we, so many times when we would try and fix things or change things or come up with brilliant ideas. I had a brilliant idea for Men of Good Fortune, which was like such a brilliant idea. I'm so relieved he never did it. Um, <laughs> but it was my brilliant idea was to get the last, because going, okay, we've got the, like the, what's gonna happen in 2020? And I was going, well, why don't we do something really exciting with Hob? He could have been like captured by people who've noticed that he's immortal and Morpheus would actually have to bust him out. It would be like a, a reversal of Morphia, and I was, you know, it's like, no, he just turns up in the pub and says I'm late. <laughs> just like he did in the comic, because that was right, and stop broken. being an idiot, you know, I ain't broken. Why does Marvel and DC, and DC not consult you on their films? I don't know. <laughs> 
I mean, nobody knows, many, you've written a lot of these characters, you know story and myth and archetypes as well as any human being alive. Do they bring you in? Does Kevin Feige have a, have a text thread with you, like uh, anything? No, I mean, Kevin and I have spoken a few times over the years on things. I think the only one that I wish, although the odds are probably the way, I think the way they did it commercially was probably better than, you know. But I remember back in 2007, um, having minimalist conversations with, with Kevin Feige about, you know, what about Doctor Strange? And uh, then talking to Guillermo del Toro and Guillermo and I having these ideas about Doctor Strange and starting the beginning of the, me starting the beginning of the conversation with Kevin just saying, I could do Doctor Strange with Guillermo. And basically they said, we just want to concentrate on the core characters right now. Doctor Strange is way up the line. We don't want to go Wait, there. You have to give me a little more. What was, what was your take? What was your approach? What was? Uh, there, were, there were some cool things in it. My favorite thing, my favorite Doctor Strange thing was the idea of the one thing that we really wanted to do was have his adventures, have him become an alcoholic and a disbarred physician and all that sort of stuff happen in the 1920s. Um, so the idea is that, you know, he went through all of that and the training to become the world's greatest magician, maybe in the early 30s, late 20s. And he's been living in Greenwich Village for 90 years, looking the same in his place, and nobody really notices right. that this is the master of... And, and we just sort of liked that idea. It's the idea that he's just... And he would have been sort of out of time. And other than that, it would have just been very sort of Steve Ditko, because, yeah. you know, that's the best. I did notice you were thanked in the credits to Eternals. Is that simply because you had a run that they probably looked at, or did you talk to Chloe or anything? No, like I, I, I never got to talk to them about it. That was just because they, they took some of the ideas from the story right. that I did. And I, 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 I felt weird with the Eternals. I wished, I wanted to love it. And I kept going, this, they either should have made a fabulous, 85-minute action minute movie, or they should have made a 10-part TV show. Right. They should have done what we did with, with Sandman and just made big-budget thing covering the whole of human history, showing the Eternals getting in there, but trying to, trying to do everything that they did in the time that they did it, um, I thought, was, was a slight missed opportunity. Finally, for the last 30-plus years, you've been asked about when is Sandman going to reach the big or small screen? I have. They can't ask. ask I know him. it's brilliant. <laughs> what should we start asking you about now? What's the new obvious? Question? Obviously, whether or not we can get the Muppets Sandman um, <laughs> off the ground. If, if the you know, if the DC Marvel thing, if Disney can come in and do a that's the first thing to um, do. I don't know her. what's next. Probably. People will find another question. Um, you know, I, I, I suspect that the next question, especially if we do get a second season, is going to be so death the high cost of living. When do we get more death? People are already in love with Kirby. Right. Um, and 
you know, again, that was the same, it's the same thing on me getting grumpy online. I got so grumpy at people who were like, aha, yes, you have cast a black woman as death. And it's like, no, I've cast the only person I saw in 600 auditions who could get me to believe. Yeah. And we got, I, we, there were supermodels, there were famous actresses, there were fabulous people auditioning, and none of them could actually get that line out about being the most pathetic excuse for an anthropomorphic personification <laughs> on this or any other plane, and have you believe it? Right. And they couldn't do it. And then Kirby, it's like, she just said that line. Oh my gosh, and now she said the super really. This is good, oh, she's good. And it was just that feeling of going, oh, I, yes, if I actually did get hit by that truck crossing the street, you know, somewhere probably south of Houston, I, I, <laughs> I really would like this. I want this person there saying, you know, you really should have looked both ways before you crossed the road. I, I would like that. She, I can believe her. And uh, so, yeah, probably the next question is going to be, when are we going to get death the high cost of living, I suspect. Don't let those few trolls get you down. 99% of us out there adore this adaptation. You know, it's I, remarkable. the truth is, I don't. And I probably should have... I, you know, I've spent a year, I, I've spent years, I've spent decades online being really good at ignoring trolls. Yeah. Um, I think on this one, there was a certain amount of righteous grumpiness <laughs> where I'm like, you people are being performatively grumpy yes. about something you don't know anything about. And this is this thing that I've been making and I'm incredibly proud of it. I think it's really good. I think it's worth the three decades that it's taken to bring it to the screen. And I also think that it's probably, in its own strange way, the most faithful comics adaptation that anybody has managed to bring to the screen yet. So honestly... Yeah. Um. Look, I've talked about many projects in my career that have taken decades and long periods of time to make, and like this is the example of the one that met the right moment, the right collaborators, and I'm so happy it happened in this way, and I'm so happy that the audience has been there, and God willing, we're going to get a season two and death, and as much as you guys can make, we'll, we'll be there for it. Um, thank you so much for sharing your genius with us tonight. Uh, let's give it up for the one and only Mr. Neil And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley, and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. <laughs>